The president's son has now been indicted on felony gun charges. The lead starts right now. New legal trouble for Hunter Biden, indicted again on federal charges, accused of lying to buy a gun and possessing it while addicted to drugs. Plus, Donald Trump's Fulton County, Georgia case delayed how this move could be a small victory for the former president. And what the F is going on with the House GOP? The F-bombs being dropped behind closed doors today as Speaker McCarthy dares the right wing of his caucus to go through with their threats and try to remove him from the speakership. Welcome to Breaking News on The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start with the breaking news in our law and justice lead for the first time in the history of the United States of America. The U.S. Department of Justice has filed felony criminal charges against the child of a sitting U.S. president, Robert Hunter Biden indicted today on three federal gun charges. This comes as we have major developments in Donald Trump's legal case in Fulton County, Georgia, a judge ruling that Trump will not stand trial in Georgia next month. That timeline being too quick. Plus, it was also something of a massive day on Capitol Hill with Speaker McCarthy taking on the MAGA Republicans who have been threatening to file a motion to remove him from the speakership, telling those would-be challengers, quote, move the effing motion. We'll get to all of that this hour, but first, special counsel David Weiss has indicted President Biden's son Hunter in connection with the gun he purchased while using illegal narcotics. The charges include two counts of making false statements on a federal firearms form and one count of possession of a firearm as a prohibited person. This stems back to 2018 when he bought a gun from a Delaware gun shop and Hunter allegedly lied on a federal form when he swore that he was not using and was not addicted to any illegal drugs. Hunter was, at the time, struggling with a crack cocaine addiction. Hunter Biden's attorneys say they are planning to fight these charges. Weiss has been leading the investigation into Hunter Biden for more than four years. His team has looked into potential felony tax evasion, illegal foreign lobbying, money laundering, and other charges tied to his foreign business dealings. You might remember... Back in June, Mr. Weiss announced a plea deal with Hunter, where Hunter would plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and the gun charge would be dropped as long as Hunter stayed out of trouble. But that deal collapsed under scrutiny from a federal judge. Then in August, Attorney General Merrick Garland elevated Weiss to become a special counsel. And that brings us to today and these charges that Hunter is now facing. Weiss said in a court filing last month that he is still weighing filing tax charges against Hunter, possibly in California or Washington, D.C. Today, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer of Kentucky, who has been leading the congressional investigations into Hunter Biden, reacted on Twitter saying, quote, today's charges against Hunter Biden are a very small start, but unless U.S. Attorney Weiss investigates everyone involved in the fraud schemes and influence peddling, it will be clear President Biden's DOJ is protecting Hunter Biden and the big guy, which is a reference, I suppose, to President Biden. Our coverage starts with CNN's Kara Scannell. And Kara, you have been following the Hunter Biden investigations for years, literally. Tell us about these charges Hunter is now facing. Well, Jake, these are three serious felony charges. And what he is charged with is filling out a an ATF form when you purchase a gun, but filling that out falsely when he said that he, when he checked a box saying that he wasn't addicted or using illegal drugs. And at the time, Hunter Biden has been very public that he was abusing crack cocaine and was addicted to it. So 
Count one was filling out that form falsely. Count two, filling out that form that is then given to the gun dealer. And so the false statement to the gun dealer in that case. And then the count three is possessing this gun while he was addicted to cocaine. So, you know, as you said, this was the culmination of a five-year-long investigation. They, Hunter Biden's team had reached a deal with U.S. Attorney David Weiss. He was appointed by former President Trump and stayed on to continue this investigation. That deal collapsed in court when it was questioned by a judge. And then David Weiss had asked Merrick Garland to elevate him to special counsel status, saying that it was necessary at this stage. Now, conversations between DOJ and Hunter Biden's team just had completely broken down and they were unable to reach any sort of agreement. That leads us to where we are today with this federal indictment. Hunter Biden's attorney, we have his first reaction to these charges, Abby Lowell. He says that this is about politics because you'll remember that in the course of this investigation, there have been this investigation on Capitol Hill by Republicans who are questioning both the DOJ investigation of this and President Biden's relationship with his son and whether he had any involvement with Hunter Biden's business dealings. There's been a lot of scrutiny by the Department of Justice. So in a new statement that we just received from Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's attorney, he says Hunter Biden Possessing an unloaded gun for 11 days was not a threat to public safety, but a prosecutor with all the power imaginable bending to political pressure presents a grave threat to our system of justice. Now, he's saying that he still believes that this deal they struck with the prosecution is valid, so they're continuing to push that. He also says that this gun law may be unconstitutional because there have been court decisions in federal court questioning whether someone should be prosecuted or whether this law is even constitutional constitutional if you have uh, if you are an addict but you're and you're sober when you purchase this gun and then also saying that he says that Hunter Biden did not violate the law so strong statement coming out of Hunter Biden's camp uh, as they're facing these new serious charges today Jake what are the next steps in the case and do we know when Hunter needs to appear in court we're still waiting to hear from the court about when he will come in. But when he does, he will come in, face the judge again, and then have to enter a plea on these charges. And then there will be discussions about bail. Um, it's unlikely that they will seek to detain him. So it will be some sort of dollar amount. you know. And then going from there, though, we do still have the looming question of the rest of this investigation. Weiss is now a special counsel. And his team has told the judge that they do intend to continue to investigate this. They say that they may bring tax charges in either Washington, D.C. or in California, where the alleged tax crimes took place. Um, they had previously reached a deal of a misdemeanor charge where Hunter Biden would have pled out to that, but that also fell apart in court. Uh, so the next question on the horizon will be when may we see these tax charges and what they will look like. And the statute of limitations on one of the years is running out in the next couple of weeks. Jake. Caracas Canal, thank you so much. Let's go now to CNN's Kayla Tausche at the White House. Kayla, this is the White House's least favorite subject. How are they reacting to the indictment? Well, when the indictment first came out, Jake, the White House statement included most of the boilerplate language that we usually hear from the administration, that it's a matter for the Department of Justice to respond to, as well as Hunter Biden's legal representatives, because it's a personal matter. And no doubt that statement by Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, goes many steps further in alleging political pressure, 
uh, by David Weiss, the special counsel, that the White House does not want to go near. The White House has said for several weeks that uh, the fact that Weiss has Republican ties and carried out this investigation for several years, that those details on, it, on its face may mean that you know, the, the investigation was conducted in a fair manner. But that was all before the plea deal fell apart. As for the president, he just concluded about 35 minutes of remarks in Prince George's County, Maryland. And at the end of his remarks, he seemed to allude to the news of the day, suggesting this when he was leaving the stage. He said, there's a lot more I know we could talk about. I wish we had a chance to take all your questions and I'm gonna get in real trouble if I do that. But on stage, it was business as usual for the president. He took aim at Republicans' uh, spending plans or lack thereof uh, and tried to contrast that with the economic platform of his own administration. But that messaging, Jake, just belies the fact that this is a president who is very close to Hunter Biden. Behind the scenes, there was a lot of frustration, consternation, and uncertainty about how this case would resolve itself once that plea deal fell apart. And as for the political fallout for the president, confidants of uh, the Biden inner circle suggest that you know they believe that while you know something like today's development might be seen as red meat for the Republican base and get Republicans riled up that their ex expectation is that it won't move independence and that there will be some degree of sympathy uh, on behalf of American families, all too many of whom are familiar with addiction. Jake. All right, Kayla Tausche, uh, thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in CNN's Paula Reed and Republican strategist uh, Kevin Madden. So, Paula, uh, this is interesting because um, this is what, what uh, uh, Abby Lowell, Hunter's lawyer, says mm -hmm. about the constitutionality of this law. He's not making that up. This is a real thing. There are people out there who are talking about um, this gun possession law uh, that Hunter is accused of breaking, being on shaky legal ground. There is an appeals court ruling uh, covering three southern states uh, that in August declared it unconstitutional. Um, how, how, does it, how does that impact the case, and what's the, under, what's the reasoning behind it? It's a big problem for prosecutors. Those people are talking about this is the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that recently ruled that you cannot bar someone from owning a firearm because of past drug addiction issues. That holding speaks directly to the heart of this case. And this is part of a wider pattern that we've seen at the Supreme Court and other courts expanding Second Amendment rights. So it's fascinating to see something that President Biden has really tried to push back on could potentially help his son here. But he's absolutely right. Shaky legal ground and that circuit Court appeal ruling is it's a, it's really important for Hunter Biden's legal team. Yeah, I mean, if the argument is that that addiction is a disease, uh, as long as the person isn't using drugs at that moment, how can they? I mean, this is the argument, I suppose. Mm -hmm. How can they be faulted and prevented from uh, exercising their their constitutional right? Yeah, and I'm watching this case as I've been covering the Hunter Biden uh, investigation and trying to see did prosecutors use this as part of their calculation. So again, these charges today, it is fair to say that based on that circuit court ruling this case could be on shaky ground. So when um, Weiss, the special counsel, was appointed uh, to the special counsel position, he, he was criticized by Republican congressmen because they thought he'd entered into this sweetheart plea deal with Hunter Biden, even though he was appointed by Trump, even though he was had Republican ties. He's obviously some liberal stooge. Uh, here's here's what people said. Uh, McCarthy said, if Weiss negotiated the sweetheart deal that couldn't get approved, how can he be trusted as special counsel? Lindsey Graham said, Mr. Weiss has been compromised. His whole team to me has been compromised. Tim Scott said the special counsel can't be trusted. And this decision raises further questions about the independence of Biden's DOJ. 
Um, and we saw with James Comer's reaction, they're still saying basically, unless he goes after President Biden, this whole thing's a farce. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're looking for consistency on legal opinions and consistency of, on messaging, you're not really going to find a whole lot of that in Congress. I think the dueling sort of uh, rationalities here, I think, speak to just how much of a political and partisan zeal there is surrounding this case. So the zero-sum game here is going to be about the president's detractors uh, trying to press the investigators uh, and their own, uh, and uh, using their own process up on Capitol Hill to continue to ask questions and continue to sort of press upon the White House to provide answers and also Hunter Biden to provide answers about potential malfeasance. So that's not going away. Um, This battle between... um, the, the Congress and the White House and the Republicans in the Congress against the president on this is going to continue. And Paula, Abby Lowell, Hunter's attorney, seems to be suggesting that Weiss is only doing this uh, because he's been called out by his, well, I don't know if he's a Republican, but but he's been called Trump out. Trump appointed you as Trump, attorney. Yeah, the, the Republican, that he's susceptible to criticism from the right. That it's, mm-hmm. this, Abby Lowell seems to be suggesting you're getting pressured by, by the Jim Jordans of the world and so you're filing these charges. Something Weiss will have to answer to eventually. It's interesting. I was making calls uh, in, in on the Trump cases that I, of course, covered very closely a few moments ago. And one of the Trump orbit lawyers told me this case is completely political. There's no way you'd bring a case like that against someone unless it was political. This is the kind of stuff, these gun charges that are usually hashed out with prosecutors. So Abby Lowell and a Trump world lawyer completely in agreement on suggesting that this is politically motivated. And Kevin, today Trump reacted to Hunter's indictment on Truth Social saying, quote, this, the gun charge, is the only crime that Hunter Biden committed that does not implicate, and then he referred to President Biden, um, this is what we're going to hear on the campaign trail, I emerge. Yeah, I mean, this underscores my point, which is I think, um, you know, Paula brings up a good point about the the, the court of public, uh, the court of law. There's going to be a lot of nuance or substance. There's a lot of details involved. But in the court of public opinion and the political arena, this is it. It is us versus them. And I think as much as possible, the, uh, the, the Trump uh, forces, uh, Trump and his allies in Congress, uh, I think are going to try to draw um, anything related to Hunter Biden closer and closer to President Biden. And that's the goal, whether it's through insinuation, whether the facts lead there or not, is probably a secondary consideration for them because it helps them politically. You know what, I bet, I bet yeah, when, when Joe Biden took office, they kept uh, the Durham investigation and they kept the U.S. attorney for Delaware uh, because of conflicts of interest, right. because Durham was investi- investigating uh, the investigation to Russiagate and because Weiss was investigating Hunter Biden. My guess is, and this is just a prediction, that that's the last time we see any administration right. do that kind of thing. I think Democrats are going to take. They're going to say like, Donald Trump was out there commuting Roger Stone's sentence. Why are we doing this anymore? Like, I mean, it can be useful to have a U.S. attorney in your back pocket who was appointed by your predecessor. Remember, there's also the U.S. attorney in Chicago. Tell that to Joe Biden right who, now. Who was, excuse me, Mr. President, um, who was tasked with the, the original review of the Biden classified documents. Uh, probe, which eventually turned into a special counsel. It can be kind of useful to have a U.S. attorney appointed by someone else holding on to the special counsels. Also, it, it can be useful to insulate. So there is there is a utility to it. We live in extraordinary times. Yeah. All right, Kevin, thanks so much. Paul, stick around. Uh, for weeks, many Democrats in Congress wanted to help defend President Biden against a potential impe- impeachment inquiry related to his son's activities. How does this new federal indictment change their calculus, uh, if at all? Plus, 
the hot mess among House Republicans throwing around F-bombs, threatening to throw out their speaker. Let us not forget the federal government is also facing a potential shutdown. Hey, guys, don't forget that. Republican Congressman Ken Buck's going to join me. That's next. We're back with more on the breaking news. Hunter Biden indicted on three federal gun charges, two counts for alleged false statements he made while purchasing the gun and a third count for possessing the gun while addicted to drugs. This not only has significant legal implications, but political ones, too. Of course, Paula Reed is back with me, along with CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel. And Jamie, Donald Trump already using this to his political advantage or trying to uh, at least. How, how damaging is this, do you think, to Joe Biden's reelection campaign? Fair or unfair? Hunter Biden's problems are his father's problems. That's just the way it's going to work. Look, if you think about our recent CNN poll, what was it? 61% say they think Biden had at least some involvement in Hunter Biden's business dealings. There is no evidence of that. And this, these are completely different charges. This has nothing to do with that. But there is you know, a problem of perception. And despite the fact there is no evidence, it does hurt politically. Paul, are we going to see Hunter Biden arrested, arraigned, mugshot? Are we going to see all that? He'll likely be treated like any other federal defendant. Usually in cases like this, you negotiate uh, with the Justice Department when to turn yourself in, your process. There is a mugshot, but at the federal level, those mugshots are not released to the public. And then he'll have an initial appearance and an arraignment. There doesn't appear to be uh, any of this on the calendar yet. That is something that's going to have to be negotiated between the two sides. Again, if it's like any other case, I'd expect all that to happen next week. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was asked uh, just minutes ago, and he said he has not yet read the Hunter Biden indictment. Hunter Biden is um, there's a lot of talk on Capitol Hill about Hunter Biden. It is where they are focusing a lot of their attention, the House Republicans. Right. And and look, this is going to be a problem for for Joe Biden and messaging. Joe Biden is not Donald Trump. He is not going to come out and say this is a witch hunt. The White House says we're directing questions to the Justice Department. That doesn't work with Donald Trump and with this Republican Party because there is no nuance here. And one thing we know about Donald Trump is he is the king of messaging. He still is controlling the levers of this Republican Party. And again, he's going to play this for all it's worth politically. This is a real challenge for messaging for the Democrats and for Joe Biden. And Paula, help me understand something. So the, there had been a plea deal mm-hmm, yes. between uh, Weiss and Hunter's lawyers. It was going to be misdemeanors and the gun charge was going to be put aside as long as diverted, Hunter yeah. diverted. Um, but but there, they had not agreed on whether or not there could be future charges brought against Hunter, right? And Hunter's lawyers... Well, they thought they had agreed, but then well, they they it got murky real fast. Or yeah. got murky real fast. And, and Hunter's lawyers were like, look... We can't have it that we enter into this plea deal and then Donald Trump gets reelected and he sicks the Justice Department on us. And then we face new charges just because Donald Trump wants it. And the judge said and the judge said, well, then you guys don't have an understanding at all and threw the whole thing out. Is that what happened? Uh, Approximately. Look, the reason you enter into a plea deal is to resolve the case. He was investigated for five years. The only charges that the Justice Department brought forward were these tax charges and the gun diversion. So I think it would be fair for a lawyer to say, you're not going to just leave this hanging over my client. Right. We're going to plea and we're going to resolve this now that he is facing this new indictment. This could potentially 
result in another plea deal. Now, he could also want to take this to trial. I think a lot of legal experts have said today, my reporting bears out, that this case is on shaky ground, the gun case. So he could just say, sure, let's go to trial. But that is incredibly costly to go up against the federal government financially and emotionally. It's unclear if he'd want to do that. So he could potentially be open to a plea deal. But he's millions of dollars in legal debt. And again, he's been under investigation for five years. So if the opportunity for a plea was presented to him, it could be something he's interested in to ultimately resolve this. And this could all play out in the middle of the campaign. Right. Um, Speaking of the campaign, there's this other major legal front in Georgia. The judge in Fulton County uh, said he um, was going to allow the case of the two co-defendants to be severed from the other 17, meaning Donald Trump's case is now not taking place next month. Um, The judge has said it's going to take about four months. So when are we going to see that case begin? Because it looks like if you look at 2024, it's a pretty packed calendar, not just with caucuses and primaries and debates and the convention, but also other trials, if you look at it. I'm glad they just put up the calendar. Look, the fact is that this isn't going to happen in October, which we did not expect it would. The judge signaled that last week. It is almost impossible to find four months ahead of the 2024 presidential election. So what this signals to us today, the fact that he and 16 of his co-defendants have been sort of pushed back, while two of them will go in October, the rest are pushed off, it is likely, it appears, that he will not be tried in Fulton County, Georgia, until after the 2024 election, which is great for him because that's been a strategy at the federal level and the state level. Delay, delay, delay. All right, Paul and Jamie, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next... Uh, Those uh, tense moments behind closed doors as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy confronted uh, his skeptics in his House Republican caucus. I'm going to talk to Republican Congressman Ken Buck next. He was in the room. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We have breaking news right now. Less than eight hours left for the big three automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, to make a new deal with the United Auto Workers Union. Without a deal, the UAW says they will start targeted strikes at a number of auto plants. A warning from the union's president saying they are, quote, preparing to strike these companies in a way they've never seen before, unquote. The looming strike being closely watched by the White House as it could have widespread economic consequences. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich is in Dearborn, Michigan. She's standing by with the president and CEO of Ford, Jim Farley. Vanessa? Jake, here at Ford World Headquarters with Jim Farley, president and CEO, we are just hours away from this strike deadline. Do you think Ford can come to an agreement with the union by the deadline? 
I think everyone's imagining that there's a small team in a conference room somewhere negotiating the final aspects of the deal, and that's not happening. We made our offer the fourth in two weeks uh, on Tuesday, and we've heard nothing really of substance back. We're still waiting for feedback on the UAW. We are planted out here. We have finished all the negotiation, the non-monetary parts. All the team has worked really hard with the UAW national negotiators. But when it comes to the really heavy, most important monetary issues, we're hearing nothing back so far on our proposal. What we have been hearing is the UAW is planning a targeted strike. Do you think that that's going to happen? Right now, it looks like they're spending more time on the targeted strike than uh, a historic strike of all three companies uh, rather than a historic deal. We would rather make history by a, a deal that's going to propel our industry forward for the next you know, decades with this huge transition. Uh, so we'll see. We're ready if there's a strike. Uh, but we don't want there to be a strike. We're ready to work until the deadline is done, as we have for the last two weeks. You have offered a historic wage increase, yes. uh, the most, I believe, in the company's yes. history. What is your understanding about what they are still looking for? Well, Sean's requests are very clear. He proposed a, a nearly $300,000 fully fringed wage for each of our factory workers to work four days a week. And if we had done that in our business, when we've had a couple of really great years here, we would have gone bankrupt many years ago. Uh, $15 billion of losses, we'd have to close plants, many, most people would lose their jobs, and we'd have no money to invest. So what we are looking at, the stark reality of the proposal, is you know a, a fully a, a tenured teacher in the United States makes sixty six thousand dollars. You know we can't we can't run our business that way. So that's why we have put all these offers on the table, but we haven't heard really anything back of substance, especially today in the final hours. When I spoke to you over the last few days at Ford events, I could sense your frustration. What is your emotion standing here today in the last hours? I feel for our team. My my grandfather's a factory worker, and uh, for them, this is going to be very difficult. We haven't had a strike since the 70s at Ford. We have the most UAW workers, and we put the most generous offer we've ever had in our history that's fully competitive with all the UAW negotiated industrial companies. And we haven't even been able to negotiate with people. So I, I feel, as a leader of the company, for our team. Um, because the way they want to do the strikes, if there is a strike, is many people may not get paid, may not get unemployment, may not get the strike fund. Um, so I feel terrible for our team. In the end, that's who suffers when we can't make a deal. The workers that are left on the factory floor who are not going out on these targeted strikes, will they be compensated still by Ford? Well, it depends on you know, how this rolling strike works. If it's a stamping plant or an engine transmission plant that supplies, you know, many of the downstream assembly plants, and that's how we've designed our system to be efficient, you know, those people, you know, we'll have to close those plants because there's no parts to make the vehicles. We can't make a partial, you know, a vehicle without an engine or a transmission or stampings. So those people will, you know, basically be furloughed. And depending on the state, they may get unemployment, they may not get unemployment, they may get strike funds or not, that's up to the UAW. So it'll be a lot of hardship for people. The union has claimed that some automakers are not negotiating in good faith. Do you feel as though the union is negotiating in good faith? You know, I, I have to say we've never seen what we've seen in 80 years of working with the UAW. We put four great offers on the table 
and we get little pieces of paper about one aspect or the other. We've never gotten a really serious counteroffer in two weeks. You know, I don't know what to call that. And now, for the last day and a half, we haven't even had anyone really on the other side of the table, like Sean Fain saying, here's what we'd like to do. I, I, we've never seen anything. I don't know if there's words to describe, given the significance of what this means for the future of the industry, when you can't even negotiate with us. Negotiating isn't saying, here's a choice. Uh, pay everyone like I asked, because, and then you can go bankrupt. That's not a choice. That's not negotiating. Negotiating is working through this like we have for 80 years. The union is asking for ambitious demands. They are no sure. doubt ambitious. Um, do you believe that they set those standards so high because they wanted a strike regardless of what the big three were willing to propose? I don't know, but I watched the Facebook Live last night with my team and all the hardworking negotiators at Ford. And um, it seemed like most of the time or a lot of the time was spent talking about emotionally preparing for a strike or a strike. Um, and that would be historic with all three companies. At Ford, we would like to make history by making a historic deal, not by uh, having a historic strike. Vanessa, can I, Vanessa, the can I? UAW is asking, yes, Jake, go I'm ahead. I'm sorry, I just, I, I just interviewed uh, Sean, the head of the UAW the other day, and I just wanted to pass on a question based on something he had told yes. me the other day, which is that over the last four years, each uh, of the big three car manufacturer CEOs, in addition to their multi-million dollar salaries, they received on average a 40% pay increase. So why are the auto workers wanting a raise beyond what's been asked? Why is that so offensive compared to the 40% raises they have given themselves? Mm -hmm. Jake spoke to Sean Fain the other day live on air, and he is asking, uh, the union is saying that CEOs like yourself of the big three have received 40% pay increases yourself. So why is it so egregious for the union workers to be asking for the same thing? Actually, we're really open to huge increases. 40%? Well, you know, it depends how you count that. I, I wasn't a CEO four years ago, so I, I can't speak for myself, but I will tell you that we have put on the table increases double-digit increases that we've never seen before, 20-plus percent. If you include COLA, it's even larger than that. But that's that. not 40, what right. they're asking Right, and I'm saying 40 percent will put us out of business. We would lose $15 billion. We would have to plant, cut people, close plants. What's the good of that? It's not a sustainable business. There's a fine line here that we won't go past, which is we want everyone to participate in our success. But if it prevents us from investing in this transition to EVs and in future products, like the ones we have now, like new F-150, best-selling vehicle in the world, in, in the U.S., then everyone's job's at risk if we don't invest. So there's a line. The line isn't for us to go bankrupt. The line is somewhere in the middle, and the only way to resolve that is to actually negotiate. Jake has another question. Jake, what is well, it? It's just there have been record auto profits, uh, bailouts by the U.S. government, these huge raises that these CEOs are giving themselves. Uh, and uh, I, I just wonder um, why uh, there isn't more of a desire uh, from of the CEOs to have the workers share in uh, the profits that, that, are, that are coming in uh, to these automakers who just need we remind him, were bailed out by the U.S. taxpayer a few years ago. 
Yeah. Jake reminds us that many of the big three automakers were, were, were bailed out. I know not Ford, but not, so, not Ford, um, but others were. Um, and there have been record profits in recent years uh, across many of the companies. And you are getting a very nice salary. Why should the workers not be able to share in these record profits? Yeah, our offer to the team is reinstate protection for um, inflation, get rid of all the tiers that were created during 08. But what about the profit sharing? Sure, our profit sharing, we've, we've distributed $75,000 over the last 10 years to the average worker at Ford. Uh, we've actually, we're the only automaker that has added jobs to the UAW since the Great Recession. We didn't go bankrupt, we kept adding jobs. Our competitors added jobs in other countries like Mexico and Canada. Uh, we didn't. So we're in a very different situation. We have so many more workers than any of our competitors. This is why we were hopeful that we could work together and find a way to reward our team beyond profit sharing, which will continue, but healthy wage increases uh, so that we can work on this historic deal and we can go forward and continue to invest. But it's hard to negotiate with yourself. Yeah. Last question. Your grandfather worked at Ford yes. in the very early days. Yes. Yes. Uh, I imagine he was advocating for himself at that time yes. as well. What would he think about what is going on right now with these negotiations? Yeah, my grandfather started in the early teens. He was 389th employee of the company. Um, and I know he would, he would say to me, get back to work. Um, but what he would really want is, Jim, make sure everyone's taken care of but make sure everyone has a future. Uh, those words ring in my ears every night I go to sleep. Thank you, Jim Farley, CEO and president of Ford. The hours are counting down to the deadline. Ford wants to make a deal, uh, but they say it's been an uphill battle. Jake. All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, uh, great get. Thank you so much uh, from Dearborn, Michigan. Let's get some reaction from CNN's Richard Quest. Richard, uh, you heard the CEO of Ford uh, saying that they're nowhere near a deal. Uh, what are you expecting happens next? Oh, well, I think what's interesting is the way in which the union has tackled it. Uh, in previous negotiations, they've targeted one of the big three, the one that they thought they were going to get the best deal out of, and they've gone hell for leather for that company. And then that deal provided the, if you will, uh, template for everybody else. Now, that's not happening this time in the same way. So it is a, you know, Sean Fawn is doing it in a different way than predecessors, this targeting rolling strikes, aiming to inflict maximum pain for minimum disruption to his workers, per se. Um, and, and that, I think, is going to be interesting. But the truth is, Jake, they're all angry because they perceive the fat cats of the C-suite have made off like bandits and they're having to pay for higher inflation. Higher this, higher that, poorer health care. And they want something back. So I don't think this, I mean, it's not by accident, Jake. If you look at industrial relations in the United States at the moment, it cannot be an accident that you've got the UAW just about to go on strike. You've got the Screen Actors Guild. You've got the, uh, you've got the writers on strike. This is because people are angry. Yeah, and also there is a tremendous... Uh income disparity between yeah. between yeah. the people at the very top and the and the workers on the front line and income disparity yeah, uh, that completely. was not that, that was not so stark 20 years well, ago 40 years ago 50 years ago 
Well, in, in previous years, there used to be a metrics that, you know, that from top to bottom should be no more than 20 or whatever it was. And that the, the CEO didn't earn more than 20 uh, times what the lowest person, or whatever, I can't remember. The, the, but that's gone. That is gone. And it's gone because of a certain amount of CEOs, and I don't include uh, Jim from uh, Ford in this, uh, CEOs who, who really run the, squeeze the asset for maximum benefit. Uh, I don't think that really happens with the car companies per se, but it's going to be nasty. This, this is really nasty. Yeah. UAW does say, though, over the last uh, four years, uh, the CEOs of the big yeah. uh, the, of the big uh, three automakers have, have essentially given themselves uh, an average of 40 uh, percent of a raise in addition to the multimillion dollar uh, salaries that they've gotten. Uh, Richard Quest. You mean, uh, you mean you didn't get the 40 percent? <laughs> That's a good one. Richard Quest, thank you so thank much. You. Appreciate it. The House Republican conference behind closed doors today sounded a bit like this. OK. I'm not going to bring those actual nasty words into your living room, but Speaker Kevin McCarthy held a closed-door meeting with House Republicans that was intense and became heated. Three sources in the room tell CNN that McCarthy grew frustrated at the threats to oust him as Speaker. At one point, McCarthy said, the, said quote, move the effing motion, referencing recent threats from Republican Congressman Matt Gates, calling for a motion on the House floor to remove McCarthy as Speaker, to which Gates responded, quote, how about just move the effing spending bills? Obviously, nobody said effing, but you catch the drift. After the meeting, reporters caught up with McCarthy to ask him about these threats from Congressman Gates. Threats don't matter, and sometimes people do those things because of personal things, and that, that's all fine. I don't walk away from a battle. I knew changing Washington would not be easy. I knew people would fight or try to hold leverage for other things. I'm going to continue to just to focus on what's the right thing to do for the American people. And you know what? If it takes a fight, I'll have a fight. Fight being a different F word than the one Mr. McCarthy deployed away from the cameras today. Here's how Congressman Matt Gates responded to the meetings, talking exclusively with CNN's Manu Raju. I'm concerned for the speaker that he seems to be a little rattled and unhinged in a time when we need focus and strong effort. Uh, whether or not McCarthy faces a motion to vacate is within his own hands. All he has to do is come into compliance with the deal we made in January. Let us recall McCarthy is facing multiple major battles, not only these threats to oust him, but also substantively a possible government shutdown as members of his party are threatening to not pass the short-term spending bill that McCarthy wants them to, that would keep the government running past September 30th. And, of course, there's the impeachment inquiry into President Biden that McCarthy launched without presenting any concrete evidence yet that Biden personally financially benefited from his son Hunter's business dealings and without bringing that to a floor vote after saying 12 days beforehand that he would have a floor vote to demonstrate how serious the matter is. Then, of course, there's policy, right? Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Ken Buck of the great state of Colorado. Let's start with the Hunter Biden, Biden indi indictment. A lot of your Republican colleagues were critical when David Weiss was named special counsel. Uh, James Comer still being critical, basically saying, unless, well, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he wants to see more than Hunter Biden indicted on, 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 uh, on, on gun charges. Um, I mean, this would seem to suggest that David Weiss is pretty serious. No. Yes. And I have to tell you, I remember uh, when Jim Comey 
uh, announced an investigation of Hillary Clinton and all the Democrats uh, jumped up and down. And then uh, he said that he was closing it without recommending charges and all the Republicans jumped up and down. Um, this is the same situation. How silly Republicans are going to look in uh, six months if he's brought uh, gun charge, tax charges and uh, Foreign Agent, Agent Registration Act uh, violation charges. I, I mean, give the guy some time to develop this case. I don't agree with the plea agreement that he had before, yeah. but but this certainly looks like uh, he is taking it seriously. And we'll, you can't judge him until uh, we've seen the the work product. Let the law enforcement people do their job, right? I mean, that's the basic idea. So you were not at this closed door meeting that McCarthy had with the House Republican Caucus, uh, where McCarthy reportedly said he was not scared of threats to oust him and move the effing motion. But what do you make of, of everything that played out here? Well, Kevin has made promises to different parts of the conference. He has promised uh, to get to be speaker, uh, one number, uh, a low number. Then he uh, entered into negotiations with President Biden and agreed to a higher number. Oh, you're talking about on the spending bill. On the spending bill, yeah. right. And now he's stuck because he's got part of the conference that expects a lower number and part of the conference expects a higher number, and he's not going to get there with a Republican vote. So now he announces an impeachment inquiry on the president, and he's not going to get Democrats to help him out of this problem. So I, I really don't know what the strategy is on how we're going to avert uh, a shutdown in, in a week or two. So I'll get to the spending bill in a second, but... You've said that you're against the impeachment inquiry as of now because you haven't seen yet any concrete evidence that shows President Biden financially benefited from Hunter's business deals. Do you think that um, Speaker McCarthy did not bring it to the floor for a vote, as he said he would, um, because he was afraid that it wouldn't pass, that people like you might not vote for it? Oh, he knew it wouldn't pass. There were, there were probably more than 20 Republican votes that, that would not have been in favor of this. Um, he Not only did he say he was going to bring it to the floor, but he criticized uh, Nancy Pelosi for not bringing it to the floor uh, when, when she was uh, impeaching Donald Trump. So he has a long history of what he thinks needs to happen before impeachment. But when you don't have the votes, you, you don't bring it to the floor. So... It, this is always wild to me when, when somebody just tries to stand by a set of principles, however they shake out for Democrats or Republicans, which is my interpretation of what you're doing. Um, you're facing some blowback from your fellow Republicans. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted earlier this week, when is, when is Ken Buck going to announce he's a Democrat, which is amusing for anybody who is familiar with your voting record or your history. You're with the House Freedom Caucus, which is a very conservative group. Uh, but three sources have told CNN there is a serious effort underway to try to find a candidate to primary you, to challenge you, I guess, presumably from the right uh, to, uh, next year. Uh, are you worried at all? I, I won't use Kevin McCarthy's language, but, but bring it. You know, I, 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 they, they brought a primary to We have that ago. bleeping thing somewhere. <laughs> well, we'd, we'd have to rehearse. Anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, they brought a primary two years ago. I won 75-25. Um, I, I am comfortable that the people in my district know that I'm a conservative and know that I, I want to make sure we don't ruin this institution over a tit-for-tat uh, impeachment. If the evidence is there, Jake, I will absolutely vote for impeachment. I don't see the evidence at this point. McCarthy said he, to avoid a government shutdown, he plans to try to pass this short-term continuing resolution, the spending bill. You're against it. I don't know what it is yet, so I don't know if I'm against it. But, but if it isn't the 2019 number, I am against a short-term CO. Right. You want to bring the number down to the pre-COVID spending level. That's correct. Um, but what if he said, just do this through September, do the short-term spending bill, and then we will, you know, then we'll actually do some work, and the next one will be that lower level. So we've been here nine months. Yeah. Right. I'm not from Missouri, but show me. 
Right. Show me what, what, what evidence there is to believe that if we just get this CR done, you're actually going to work on a lower number. I haven't seen that yet. All right. Congressman Ken Buck uh, from the state of Colorado. Good to see you, sir. Next time, next time um, I'll, we'll practice and I'll get that uh, bleep machine ready to go. I don't use the language anyway. So is that right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good to see you. Thanks so much. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. In our world lead, we're getting a gruesome look into what Sunday's catastrophic floods left behind in northeast Libya. Disturbing images show crews in the coastal town of Derna finally able to pull out bodies that had been dragged into the mud and left to rot. Government officials estimate that more than 5,000 people were killed. 10,000 remain missing. The scope of the wave that wiped away neighborhoods in Derna was about 22 feet high. That's nearly quadruple the size of someone who is six feet tall. CNN's Ben Wiedemann has more for us now on the widespread destruction in Libya. Days after disaster struck Derna, they're still collecting the bodies. Egyptian rescue workers lower one full body bag to the pavement and go back for another. The death toll is still unclear. But there's no doubt thousands were killed in the floods, and thousands more remain missing. This survivor recounts what he saw. The children died in front of my eyes. My neighbors died, he says. It feels like a nightmare. Until this hour, I still can't believe it. And the nightmare isn't over. The magnitude of this disaster is more than this doctor, interviewed on Libyan television, can take. The numbers, he says, are awful. In a country consumed by years of conflict and hijacked by rival foreign powers, simple things like the weather service were neglected says the head of the World Meteorological Organization. If there would have been a normally operating meteorological service, uh, they could have issued the warnings and uh, and, and also the emergency management authorities would have been able to carry out evacuation of of the people. In Derna, the authorities urged caution and imposed a curfew before the storm, but there were no evacuations. And this is the result. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, Rome. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start this hour of the lead with big developments at the White House, where for the first time in the history of the United States of America, the Department of Justice has filed felony criminal charges against the child of a sitting president. The adult child, Hunter Biden, Robert Hunter Biden. He was indicted on three federal gun charges in Delaware today by special counsel David Weiss. Those charges include two counts of making false statements on a federal firearms form and one count of possession of a firearm as a prohibited person. The purchase was in 2018 at a Delaware gun shop. Prosecutors claim Hunter lied on a federal form when he swore he was not using and was not addicted to any illegal drugs. 
Hunter was struggling with a crack cocaine addiction at the time. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez joins us now. And Evan, this was a case that was minutes away from being wrapped up with a plea deal a few weeks ago. So how did we end up here? Well, the judge asked some not unreasonable questions, Jake, about the scope of this agreement between prosecutors. At the time, they were contemplating having him plea to misdemeanor charges on tax uh, for tax uh, charges and a diversion program for this gun charge, whereby if he simply abided by conditions, including staying off drugs, uh, not having possession of a firearm, uh, this gun charge would have gone away. And as a result of the questions the judge was asking about the constitutionality of the, the, the structure of this agreement, whether it, it meant that Hunter could not be charged for anything else, the two sides basically decided that they weren't in agreement for this, uh, for this deal. And so now here we are. We now have uh, David Weiss, who was a Trump-appointed uh, U.S. attorney who stayed on to handle this investigation. He's now a special counsel. Mm-hmm. And he decided to bring this charge just about two weeks before uh, the deadline for him to bring it. And so, as you pointed out, this is a charge uh, that goes back to 2018. This is a five-year investigation that has looked at a lot of things. Uh, obviously, a lot of controversy as to whether it has been. It has looked at everything, right? There are some uh, allegations from whistleblowers who say that they were prohibited from looking at all of the allegations. But here we are, five years later. This is the single charge that has been brought. It is important to note that the special counsel is not done. We anticipate, and he has signaled, that he may well bring tax charges against Hunter Biden, possibly in Los Angeles where he lives, or here in Washington. This is where uh, those allegations, which is the location of where those alleged crimes took place. Again, uh, that is still uh, possibly in the offing for Hunter Biden, Jake. So... um Let me just ask you, if they bring those tax charges against Hunter Biden in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles, as you've suggested, uh, they are already signaling they they may. Right. Um, Does that not lend credence to what we heard from those whistleblowers, those IRS agents, one of whom was here, uh, who said that David Weiss behind closed doors had expressed frustration that he didn't have power to... Uh, you know, do official duties in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles? Well, not necessarily. I mean, it it doesn't prove their allegations, but I think what we're going to see in the coming months certainly is a litigation of exactly what they are claiming, which is that they were prohibited from going all it, to, to look into all of the allegations that there were that, that there were against Hunter Biden. And certainly because now the deal fell apart, the special counsel says that they're going to bring this, th- these charges because they cannot come to agreement with Hunter Biden on how to resolve it. Now, the, 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 the shadow of politics is hanging over all of this, right? If you hear, if you listen to Hunter Biden's team, they believe that, spe- that spe- the special counsel is bringing this simply because of pressure from Republicans. And Republicans say that there's far more here that needs to be investigated. Yeah, they think uh, that all the House Republicans criticizing Weiss uh, spooked him, and that's why he asked for the additional powers, and now he's being more aggressive with Hunter. Right. And and look, we have a statement from Abby Lowell, Hunter's uh, attorney, and I'll read you just a part of it. He says, Hunter Biden possessing an unloaded gun for 11 days was not a threat to public safety, but a prosecutor with all of the power imaginable bending to political pressure 
presents a grave threat to our justice system, system of justice. It is notable that Hunter Biden says, uh, his legal team says that they uh, believe that the plea deal, or at least the diversion part of this, is still binding and that the government needs to abide by this, that this charge should never have been brought. All right, Evan Pettis, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's go now to Capitol Hill, where the drumbeat from House Republicans over Hunter Biden has played out for the last few years and where it's likely uh, there would not be any impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden right now if there were not for uh, the business dealings of his son. CNF, CNN Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raju joins us now. Manu, how are Hill Republicans reacting uh, to the fact, to the news, that Hunter Biden has been indicted on these gun charges? Well, perhaps not surprisingly, they are very critical. They believe that far more should have brought against Hunter Biden. As Matt Gates said to me, it's like charging Jeffrey Dahmer with littering. That's his, his argument. They believe that the Justice Department has mishandled this from the start. Of course, when that plea deal first came together, Republicans, including the Speaker of the House, were furiously critical of that deal. They believe that they should not have gone forward there. And they said that they wanted to investigate everything that led up to it, including bringing in the uh, special counsel for an interview, bringing in everybody who was part of that investigation, asking for records and testimony. They have not gotten those records and testimony, even as the Justice Department has offered uh, special counsel Weiss to come to Capitol Hill because Jordan, Jim Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, wants other people to talk to first. Now, there is an expectation in the House GOP circles that perhaps now that Hunter Biden has been charged, it will be much harder to get Hunter Biden Biden to come to Capitol Hill as part of the impeachment inquiry. Remember, this has been a drumbeat on the on the right to push for a subpoena for Hunter Biden. They have not issued a subpoena yet. But now that he has been charged, there is a belief that could scramble their calculus in this investigation to try to tie all of Hunter, business, Hunter Biden's business dealings to the president of the United States, proof that they have not been able to corroborate yet, but one that they believe would be central to getting Hunter Biden to testify about. But can they get that now? That is is still an open question. And Jake, Democrats reacting much differently here. They're saying that if Hunter Biden broke the law, then he should be charged. But in the words of people like Congressman Adam Schiff and James, Jamie Raskin, they're saying that Democrats are different in their view than Republicans. They say if Hunter Biden broke the law, he deserves to be prosecuted, unlike how Republicans deal with Donald Trump if he broke the law and then said they defend Donald Trump. Hmm. All right, Bonaraju, thanks so much. With me now, Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland. Uh, Congressman Raskin, good to see you. Let's start with the indictment of Hunter Biden, three counts. Um, what, what was your reaction to the charges? Well, the rule of law continues to work in America. Um, I suppose it was not unlike my reaction after the four indictments against Donald Trump and the 91 criminal charges, which is that the grand juries have met, the grand juries have assembled all the facts, and the grand juries have have acted, and you know, I know there's some jubilation and celebration among uh, my GOP colleagues, um, and you know that that's fine if that's their feeling. Um, it's a bit ironic to me, given that I think if almost anybody else in the country were charged with those gun charges, they would be calling for Second Amendment rallies all over the country. Um, but we do stand up on our side of the aisle for the rule of law. We want to see the rule of law work in everybody's case, whether we're talking about Hunter Biden or Donald Trump or Jared Kushner or anybody else. Actually, I haven't heard much jubilation from House Republicans, but the comments that mainly uh, we're hearing are along the lines of this is, somebody said something to Manu Raju, this is like charging uh, Hannibal Lecter or Ted, who was it, uh, or, or Ted Bundy with uh, littering or some, someone like, so somebody notorious charging them with littering. Uh, and like, unless I, I think uh, Congressman Comer, the chairman of House Oversight, 
you know, insinuating that unless he really goes after all the nefarious players, including the big guy, a reference to President Biden, uh, you know, this is a sham, I'm paraphrasing, but that's really what I'm hearing from your Republican colleagues. Well, remember that we're talking about a special counsel um, who was originally the U.S. attorney for Delaware, named by Donald Trump, and President Biden retained him in office when President Biden was elected. So this was Trump's U.S. attorney, now the special counsel in the case. And the problem I have with my colleagues is they pick and choose when they stand by the rule of law and when they don't. Obviously, um, you know, Donald Trump has uh, diagnosed it pretty much correctly when he says he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he would not lose any support among uh, his right-wing following. Fortunately, that might relate to the Republican Party today, but that's not how the rule of law works, and that's not how the Justice Department works. And on our side of the aisle, we say if people commit crimes, they're entitled to presumption of innocence and due process, but if the grand juries meet and they hand down an indictment, then you move forward to trial. And again, due process and the presumption of innocence operate, but we want to see that our laws are enforced. And I would love to hear just one Republican state the same thing on the other side. Well, we just had Congressman Ken Buck on, and he, he, he said that the reason why Speaker McCarthy did not bring the impeachment inquiry for a vote is because there were at least 20 Republicans that were not going to vote for it, uh, presumably including him, because they didn't see any evidence that President Biden had financially benefited from many of Hunter's uh, business dealings. So there are at least 20 uh, who are trying to look uh, for the evidence. But one of the questions I have about the impeachment inquiry is, is there any chance this doesn't end in an impeachment vote? Because it, I, I, I have a difficult time envisioning Speaker McCarthy having this impeachment inquiry ending with clear, a, a clearing of President Biden's name. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't yeah. matter what evidence they find, uh, even if they find nothing more than what we have now, won't, don't you think they'll just say, oh, it's a culture of corruption, et cetera, et cetera, and they just proceed from there? Well, I think we got used to that kind of politics under Nancy Pelosi, where she didn't bring anything to the floor unless she knew exactly what the vote was going to be, or at least that it was going to win and her side would prevail. But as we saw during Kevin McCarthy's election in the very first week of this Congress, he didn't mind losing vote after vote after vote. And the mega right did not mind pressing him to the wall in that way. So I think that the, the mega right, which of course is driving the train here, will say, we want votes on impeachment. We think we, we will be able to bring enough coercive pressure on members like Ken Buck, who right now are of course saying that there's simply not a shred of evidence linking President Biden to any form of criminal wrongdoing or a high crime and misdemeanor. But you know, we've been through that on the floor with them, and I think they're willing to drag the whole country through uh, such a process. I mean, we came back to work this week, and they've basically um, had three outrageous demands. One, shut down the government of the United States. Two, impeach the president of the United States for no reason at all. And three, they want to overthrow Kevin McCarthy himself. And that is the rampaging right-wing faction which Kevin McCarthy is trying to subdue through appeasement. I want to play this clip from Anderson Cooper's show last night where he interviewed former Speaker Pelosi. Take a listen. No, is is Vice President Kamala Harris the best running mate for this president? He thinks so, and that's what matters. But do you think she is the, the best running mate, though? She's the vice president of the United States. So when people say to me, well, why isn't she doing this or that? I said, because she's the vice president. That's the job description. You don't do that much. 
Not exactly a ringing endorsement. Do you think Vice President Kamala Harris is the best running mate for President Biden? And what do you make of Speaker Pelosi's answer there? I mean, there didn't seem to be anything wrong uh, with that answer. Obviously, um, President Biden, Vice President Harris, Speaker Pelosi, for that matter, all of us have been laboring under just a deluge of propaganda, disinformation, and criticism by the MAGA right. Uh, This is a rule or ruin faction, which takes the position that if they're not going to be able to control the direction of government, they are going to throw grease in the gears to try to shut everything down. And what we're all dealing with right now is this impending September 30th deadline because the MAGA right wants to shut down the government. You are doing what Speaker Pelosi did, which is not answering the question. Do you think Kamala Harris is the best running mate for President Biden? Is it, well, obviously, she, she gave the right answer. That's President Biden's choice. And I think she's an excellent running mate uh, for President Biden. Um, you know, I don't know what more needs to be said about that. Obviously, people um, are still trying to, you know, throw presidential politics um, into turmoil. But um, President Biden and Vice President Harris are running on an excellent record. Uh, $1.2 trillion investment in infrastructure, the Inflation Reduction Act, record investment in climate action. We've reduced prescription drug prices. And so there's a very strong policy record to run on there. And I want to resist the tendency to try to trivialize all politics by making it just about personalities. It's it's not a, no one's making it about personalities. I mean, like, it's just a simple question. Do you think Kamala Harris is the best running mate for President Biden? You've said she's excellent. That's farther than Speaker Pelosi went. But do you think she's the best? I'm not trying to throw anything into turmoil. I, I actually think it's a pretty simple question. Do you think Kamala Harris is the best running mate for President Biden? Yes or no? I mean, I don't know what else I can say other than she you can would say be yes. an excellent running mate and an excellent vice president. Um, I don't know whether President Biden has named his uh, running mate, we're going to a convention uh, next summer. It's uh, uh, you know a year away from now, um, and we're going to go through that process. So I mean, the, uh, you say I don't know why you can say. The answer is you could say yes. You could say yes. I think Kamala Harris is the best vice president and the best running mate for President Biden. That that that's the the answer you could be giving right now. Yes, she is. So I've not seen any public opinion polling. Um, you know, I, you might be a stronger vice presidential uh, running mate than her or me or anybody else. I don't know who else, if you're talking about the polling, but I will tell you as a matter of substance and public policy, she'd be an excellent choice. Wow. And she and the president have done an excellent job. I'm only running as a member of the Bull Moose Party, but I appreciate your vote. Democratic uh, Maryland Representative Jamie Raskin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good to see you as always. And by the way, great to see your hair. I don't, for those who don't know, you were fighting cancer, you had chemo, you've been wearing uh, your, your... Little Stevens bandana. Your little Stevie bandana for I'll, I'll never months. be that cool again. And, uh, but your hair looks great, and it's good to see it. Uh-huh. Thank you for having me. A major development for Donald Trump and uh, his case in Fulton County, Georgia. Why a judge is delaying his trial past next month. Stay with us. Back with our law and justice lead, and for the first time in the history of this great republic, the U.S. Department of Justice has filed charges against the son of a sitting United States president. We're following the breaking news, of course, 
of Robert Hunter Biden's indictment today on three gun charges, as well as the major developments in the criminal case against former President Donald Trump and 18 other defendants in Georgia. Former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General under George W. Bush, Tom Dupree, uh, joins us now. And we'll we'll get to the Georgia case in a second. But first, I want to get your reaction quickly to the Hunter Biden indictment. I'm not surprised. We knew this day was coming, Jake. When that whole plea deal blew up, the special counsel, or now the special counsel, said, look, if you blow this plea deal up, there are going to be charges. We're going to litigate this case in court. And he was true to his word. He did. Three felony charges, very serious. Each carries the possibility of significant jail time for Hunter Biden. I suspect his lawyers today are looking back at that blown up plea deal and saying, you know, Maybe we made the wrong choice. That was actually a pretty good deal they had. I don't know any lawyer that ever admits uh, mis- having made a mistake, but, but maybe you're right. Somewhere deep in, in, the in their re- heart of hearts. In their they d- know deep they in know the recess- recesses of their mind. Back to the Georgia case. Today, uh, Judge McAfee shut down District Attorney uh, Fannie Willis's, Willis's uh, request to try Trump and his co-defendants, all 19 of them together. Next month, she argues splitting up the case, quote, to multiple lengthy trials would create an enormous strain on the judicial resources of the Fulton County Superior Court. Georgia, of course, has what's essentially a rocket docket, a right to a speedy trial. Two of them want the case next month. uh, And uh, the judge just said that's impossible. You you can't have it. Does that mean uh, you think that ultimately the racketeering case might fall apart? Well, I'm not sure it's going to fall apart. I think it's going to be splintered. I think we're going to see different groups of different defendants tried at different times. And look, I take the DA's point that she doesn't want to excessively burden the judicial system. But I have a newsflash. Trying 19 defendants all at the same time, that would burden the judicial system. I think trying all 19 together was a non-starter from the very beginning. Yeah. We knew that some defendants would want to go their own separate ways. Doesn't surprise me at all that the judge said that's how we're going to proceed. So we'll get a preview. These two are going to go first. But you can bet all the other defendants, all their lawyers are going to be watching that proceeding like a hawk to get tips because it's a preview of coming attractions for them. And it's not easy to put on a trial necessarily. People might think it is. I mean, it may be for like, you know, jaywalking or something. But the lawyer for Kenneth uh, Chesbro, that's the alleged architect of the fake elector scheme, uh, he got eight terabytes of discovery evidence today. To put it in perspective, the newest, priciest iPhone models only have one terabyte of storage. Chesbro's lawyer got eight terabytes of discovery evidence Are you surprised that this massive trove of evidence, A, exists, and B, was presented months after the... the indictment was handed down. Well, I'm not surprised it exists. I mean, look, this is a sprawling case. I mean, the indictment itself le- reads like a Victorian novel, hundreds of pages. So the volume of discovery material doesn't surprise me. And look, they will review it electronically. This is not the olden days of litigation where you have to go through page by handwritten page of material. They can search. They can do electronic term searches. So they'll process that material pretty quickly. But nonetheless, it's a vast volume of things. This is not a simple jaywalking case. But is that eight terabytes? Is that everybody's discovery evidence or is it just just for Chesbro. It, it's well, it's in this case, it's just for Chesbro, but my guess is there will be a huge amount of overlap with the other defendants. So, what they're using against Chesbro, in all likelihood, they'll use against a lot of the other defendants, too. Still a lot of crap. Oh all right, gosh, Tom huge. Dupree, thanks so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Coming up next, Mitt Romney's revelations, the Utah senator's scathing criticisms and expressions of fear for the Republican Party. Stay with us. Our politics lead now in a stark warning from a member of Republican royalty about what his party is becoming. Republican Senator Mitt Romney from Utah announced yesterday that he will not run for re-election next year. At the time of the announcement, excerpts from McKay Coppin's upcoming biography, Romney, A Reckoning, were released. Coppins, a writer with The Atlantic, where the excerpts appeared, 
got unprecedented access to the senator and 2012 Republican presidential nominee. Romney, of course, was a tough critic of Trump in 2016. He seemed stunned to discover after being elected to the Senate in 2018 that among his new Republican colleagues, quote, almost without exception, they shared my view of the president, Romney told Coppins. Every time he publicly criticized Trump, it seemed, some Republican senator would smarmily sidle up to him in private and express solidarity. I sure wish I could do what you do, they'd say, or gosh, I wish I had the constituency you have. This happened so often that Romney started keeping a tally, Coppins writes. Romney was surprised at the cognitive dissonance during the 2019 impeachment trial of Trump. During a break in the proceedings, Coppins writes, after the impeachment managers finished their presentation, Romney walked by Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. They nailed him, the Senate Majority Leader said. Romney, taken aback by McConnell's candor, responded carefully. Well, the defense will say that Trump was just investigating corruption by the Bidens. If you believe that, McConnell replied, I've got a bridge I can sell you. A spokesman for McConnell says he does not recall this conversation. Before the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, Senator Angus King of Maine, a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, phoned Romney to warn him about some of the chatter among right-wing groups coming to the Capitol. Romney, Romney texted Republican Leader McConnell, quote, In case you have not heard this, I just got a call from Angus King who said that he had spoken with a senior official at the Pentagon who reports that they are seeing very disturbing social media traffic regarding the protests planned on the 6th. There are calls to burn down your home, Mitch, to smuggle guns into D.C. and to storm the Capitol. I hope that sufficient security plans are in place, but I am concerned that the instigator, the president, is the one who commands the reinforcements the D.C. and Capitol Police might require, unquote. McConnell did not respond to Romney. During the insurrection, cameras captured Mitt Romney running down a hallway to escape the mob after a police officer told him to turn around. Romney says he thought the Trump fever might break after that horrible day. But by then, Romney says, fealty to Trump was no longer just about political calculations. Quote, after January 6th, a new, more existential brand of cowardice had emerged. One Republican congressman confided to Romney that he wanted to vote for Trump's second impeachment for the January 6th insurrection, but chose not to out of fear for his family's safety. You can't do that, Romney recalled someone saying. Think of your personal safety, said another. Think of your children. The senator eventually decided they were right. And then there's how Romney talks about his Republican colleague, Josh Hawley. Romney was sitting behind Hawley in the Senate chamber when Hawley stood up and urged lawmakers to not certify the 2020 election results. This is just hours after rioters were cleared from the Capitol, when bodies were taken out of the Capitol that had died during the insurrection. Quote, Josh Hawley is one of the smartest people in the Senate, if not the smartest, Romney says, and Ted Cruz could give him a run for his money. They were too smart, Romney believed, to actually think that Trump had won the 2020 election. Hawley and Cruz, quote, were making a calculation, Romney told me, that put politics above the interests of liberal democracy and the Constitution. CNN caught up with Senator Josh Hawley on the Hill today and got him to respond to what Romney said. 
That is probably the nicest things he's ever said about me. Uh, certainly in public, you should see what he says about me in private. Uh, and I did like the part where he said that maybe I was smarter than Ted Cruz. So I would say on balance, he was probably like 47% accurate. To Mitt Romney, at least, this seems to not be a laughing matter. This is a, a very fragile thing, he told Coppins in the book. Authoritarianism is like a gargoyle lurking over the cathedral ready to pounce. And for the first time in his life, Mitt Romney wasn't sure if the cathedral, the cathedral of democracy, would hold. Stay with us. We have a lot to unpack with our panel, including Donald Trump's controversial comments in a new interview. In our politics lead today, a wide-ranging new interview with former President Donald Trump. Megyn Kelly pressed Trump on the federal classified documents case, specifically the 2021 audio tape of Trump as he seems to show someone a document. You can hear him describe it as a plan for a potential attack on Iran. Trump recently told Fox's Brett Baer that he was holding up just a, it was a newspaper, he said. Take a look. Why would you be holding up a newspaper saying this is still secret? I'd have to I look at it. I could declassify it if I were look, president. I would have not. to look at it. But that's what well, you told I could Brett have Baer. De- you told Brett Baer that that was a newspaper. I could have or declassified. No, I also told Brett Baer, as I remember, I don't know, it was a long time interview. Will you tell uh, me what were you I waving told, around? I in also that told Brett Baer that it wasn't a classified document. What were you waving around in that meeting? Because it certainly sounds like I'm not like going to talk to you about point. that. I'm allowed to have those documents. But that, but once you get a subpoena, you have to turn them over. I know this. I don't even know that because I have the right to have those documents. So I don't really know that. Do you believe that every CIA document that came to you as president was automatically yours to keep no matter what? Uh, I'm not going to answer that question. A man. Wow. Nice work. Let's discuss with our our, our panel. Um, I have to say, uh, she did a really good job there. I mean, like, I was going to say, as a media moment, this is really great. I think because after she left air, so to speak, and has been sort of speaking more um, supportively of Trump, maybe he thought it was going to be a slam dunk. Mm -hmm. And she came out swinging and was sort of the old Megyn Kelly as people knew her. And as a result, that's a helpful moment. You know, she also asked him about Biden being old. And Trump was the one to say, hey, I don't think the problem is age. I think the problem is incompetence. That undermines an argument that the party is making about age. So there were another a number of moments in that interview that were fascinating, and it was good to see a return to form in terms of a line of questioning. Yeah, I mean, Jake, was- as a matter of strategy, as a Republican strategist, he should have said, look, I didn't do anything wrong because that's what the base expects. And then I would have told him to pivot to the economy, where 34% of the country believes that the president is handling the economy well. Most Americans don't. This is a bad issue for Donald Trump. It does not register well with swing with consultants. Well, 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 <laughs> well, well, I mean, or anybody for that, sure, that, that, that person. As a strategist, yeah, that's as the a, advice I, that, I, that I would I give. I admire your... Uh, most independent, leaning, right voters very, just do not like the, the president's opt- behavior on that. I like it. It is, Jake. Like it is. It. You, you would be able to tell him what to say. <laughs> and he would take your excellent advice. Your excellent advice. Let me let me just play the sound that Audie was just talking about when Megan Kelly asked him if he thinks, and we should point out, uh, Donald Trump is, I believe, 77. 77. Yes. Uh, Donald Trump is 77, and she asked him, do you think uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, at 80 is too old? No, not old. He's incompetent. He's not too old. He's incompetent. And uh, age is interesting because some people are very sharp and some people do lose it, but you lose it at 40 and 50 also. 
but uh, no, he's not too old at all. He's uh, grossly incompetent. He can't make the age argument because it falls against him as well. So in that instance, probably one of the better things Donald Trump has said. But he also realizes many interviews that he has given before, he hasn't already been indicted and he wasn't going to actual federal or state court. And now he is. And so perhaps, I mean, I don't, he, Donald Trump doesn't listen to a Republican strategy, just he doesn't <laughs> listen to his attorney. Perhaps maybe for the first time, except with the exception of this interview, where he's like, I'm not going to answer this because it could, could be incriminating. He needs to stick to that line for now until so that a uh, a peer of his, a jury of his peers can actually decide oh, whether he's guilty that's or good, not. I just good. don't think he's going to incriminate him. I was following. I, was like, I mean, I just don't think he yeah. wants to incriminate himself right now yeah. in interviews. I mean, let Republicans like he has make that argument about age. I think that was smart by Trump. Let the party and, yeah. and others make that. Even what we're if, I mean, if he can't even handle aggressive questioning by Megyn Kelly, that interview to me sort of illustrated he has too many yes people around him. Oh, yeah. He's about to go to trial, potentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you stand up to cross-examination if you can't even go back and forth with Megyn Kelly? Well, speaking of that, uh, he was asked about the possibility of facing prison time. Take a listen. This is very scary for you because you're facing left-wing judges. You're facing some likely left-wing juries, yeah, and at least three out of the four. Yeah. There is a realistic chance you could go to prison. Um, Can you see that happening? You know what? My ad- I have a great attitude. It doesn't affect me at all because uh, I'm fighting for the country. I'm fighting for the people. That was you- a beautifully baked question. <laughs> something you believe, something you believe, something you believe. But do you worry about going to prison? Right, you know? right, right. I mean, that's the reality of what he's looking at. I mean, of course, he's worried he's 77 years old. And, and most of the Republican voters that I talked to, and I was just in a Midwestern state several days ago, Jake, many of them believe that the president will, or former president will be found guilty in some of these charges because of where the case is. Do they, they don't think it's because he is guilty? No, they don't think it's because he's guilty. Yeah. They think because of where the, where the trials are going to be held. Yeah. And so from their perspective, he has to win this. Can, he, he has no other choice. Can I just say... If you are not worried about going to jail by any standards of what our criminal justice system is in this country, you are out of touch with yeah. reality and you are out of touch with the everyday American. Most people do not want to go to jail. And for him to sit on national television yet again and say it doesn't bother me is he is lying to the American but, people. But that's once the again. posture that his supporters suspect. Of course he's afraid. Yeah. But if you speak to his supporters, they often say, well, we like him. He never backs down. He's a fighter. So he has to maintain that persona. But see, I, I think, Jake. Which is a lie, though. The persona is a lie. Well, this is the thing about you saying he should listen to political strategists. Because for, from my perspective, I would have said, Mr. President, this is a moment to be vulnerable. Tell your voters, mm-hmm. I am worried about mm-hmm. this. These folks are coming after me. You need to vote for me. You need to keep giving. He had an opportunity to do that, but he did not. He does not like expressing any vulnerability. I mean, I think that's yeah. not it's a criticism. It's clear, but it would have been smart. Answer. Yeah. Speaking of the presidential race, there are other candidates, uh, and one of them is Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who's looking for a way to break through. He's kind of been hovering in the, in the upper of the lowers, and um, he's dropped a new economic plan. Uh, taking aim at Joe Biden's policies, uh, talking about making Donald Trump's tax cuts permanent. Uh, Tell us more. Yeah, cutting non-defense spending, balancing the budget, shifting power back to the states. These are largely arguments that conservatives make all the time. So I don't know how much he's able to distinguish himself on this economic plan. But I think to a certain extent, it is good to be out there Talking about policy, we know that when you talk to Republican voters in places like Iowa, their number 
One concern is the cost of living right now is the economy. So I get why he is centering this. And then this also speaks to his larger reason for uh, running. He says, listen, I'm the adult in the room. I'm not trying to get into back and forths with other candidates. And, you know, emphasizing policy is just more in that vein. He is a, an optimistic candidate. He has that kind of like Reagan-esque pitch that he's that he's not negative. Um, I don't know how many of the others are like that. Uh, uh, Nikki Haley certainly is to a degree. Um, he has they're from real- the same place, right? right and they're, they're both- from the same vintage. There was a moment, especially post-Romney, where the party was like, let's look at ourselves and figure out what we need to do differently. And I think people like Marco Rubio, Tim Scott, and Nikki Haley all thought they'd be of this new multicultural representative generation of the GOP narrator. That did not happen. And so they're struggling a little bit. Like, what is this message? What is Scottonomics, right? Like, what is the exact economic policy you think would make a difference that hasn't been done by the guy who's running already? Those arguments are still not clear. Yeah, no, you're talking about the Growth and Opportunity Project. I helped contribute to that project. You know, the idea was the Republican Party needs to become more diverse. We have to become more forward-thinking. And the Rubios of the world were supposed to be the they future. They were on a bus together. No, they were. But, but unfortunately, Jake, that is just not the current status of the Republican Party. It is very populist. It's very nationalist. And people are angry. Now, Tim Scott and Governor Haley, I think they'll be good candidates to be a running mate. But I don't think they have a chance of winning the nomination. All right. Thank you so much, uh, one and all, for being here. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, and it's Audie, is it Audie Cornish Thursday? I today? believe it is. Just on this show. <laughs> so an Audie Cornish here, Thursday. Which so I really you're appreciate. dropping your new podcast today. What are you doing today? What is it today? We are going, we're talking about the popularity of Rush Talk and the sorority uh, sort Ooh. of boom on big campuses like such as Alabama. And where do people find your podcast? Uh, they find it on Apple, Spotify, or CNN.com. And it's, and it's called? It's called The Assignment. The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Thanks one one and all for being here. As auto workers inch closer to a potential strike tonight, some impacted by the Hollywood writer's strike say they're returning to work. Major shows trying to restart production. The tough spots this may leave other union workers in Hollywood still on the picket line. That's next. And our money lead less than seven hours now until members of the United Auto Workers might go on strike at undisclosed plants across the country unless the union and the big three automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, that's the international company that currently owns Jeep, Ram, and Chrysler, unless they all make a deal ending the stalemate before it creates negative ripple effects throughout the economy. Among the issues the union is pushing for are a shorter work week and a 40% hourly wage increase over four years, but last hour on the lead, Ford CEO Jim Farley told CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz that they have put double-digit increases on the table and that 40% raises would put them out of business. Here's more of what Farley said about negotiations right now. Right now, it looks like they're spending more time on the targeted strike than uh, a historic strike of all three companies uh, rather than a historic deal. We would rather make history by a, a deal that's going to propel our industry forward for the next, you know, decades with this huge transition. Uh, so we'll see. We're ready if there's a strike. While they don't want UAW to strike, the companies say they will be ready for it. Also on our Money Lead today, HBO's Bill Maher is the first late night host to join other celebrity daytime talk show hosts, such as Drew Barrymore and Jennifer Hudson, in announcing a return to work without writers. They are drawing some indignation and protests from members of the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, as the writer's strike now drags into its 136th day. The writers are at an impasse in contract negotiations with the major studios and streamers, 
which the writers' union says have refused to offer anything resembling a living wage for writers, as used to be the case in the network television days of old. It would be great, as a member of these guilds, if those who have such a high profile as Drew Barrymore would stand their ground and demand a fair contract, because I'm a nobody. And it would be wonderful if folks in that level, at that level, would use that power to stand behind us. And joining me now to discuss is an Emmy Award-winning producer and writer who has worked on such hit shows as ER and Homeland and NYPD Blue and was the showrunner of one of my absolutely favorite shows ever, Cold Case, produced by Warner Studios, which we should note, coincidentally in this case, is also part of Warner Brothers Discovery. She's also the president of the Writers Guild of America West. Meredith Steam. Meredith, so good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, So... HBO's Bill Maher, also a member of the Warner Brothers Discovery family, he says he's also concerned about the rest of his production staff. And he posted, quote, I love my writers. I am one of them, but I'm not prepared to lose an entire year and see so many below-the-line people suffer so much, unquote. What do you make of the decision made by Bill Maher, Drew Barrymore, Jennifer Hudson, and are they undermining the negotiating position of WGA? Yeah, well, there is a distinction between Bill Maher and the others because he is a Writers Guild member. The others, I believe, are SAG members, and they may have waivers to do the shows. I'm not sure. But he's a Writers Guild member, and he's going back to work. Um, So, yes, a lot of people are saying that's scabbing. There are other hosts of shows that are taking care of their staffs by paying for them themselves. Um, We're all worried about our crews and the ripple effect that the work stoppage has created. But um, there's definitely some anger um, that he's doing that. What would you make, I mean, what do you say to the people like Bill Maher who are concerned about, look, I mean, I get the arguments, but it's 135 days and there are a lot of blue-collar people who work paycheck to paycheck, and I'm not going to be writing my monologues, and I'm not going to be doing the new rules, I'm not going to be doing all the writer stuff, but, you know, these people have families to feed, too. Yep. It's actually day 136 today. It has been a long, hot summer, and it's not just writers and actors that are out there. It is anyone who works on a crew can't work right now. Anyone who works around the industry, the restaurants, around the studios, we are all suffering a lot because of this work stoppage. Someone like Bill Maher, he can sustain himself better than most during uh, a struggle like this. And yet we're a union. This is the leverage that we have is we're exercising our power by withholding our work. And um, he should be doing the same. Why is it taking so long? Well, that's a good question. Um, May 2nd, we went out. Uh, We had no conversations for 100 days. Um, But then we did start to have some conversations, and it seems very clear that there's a deal to be made. Um, And we have made some progress in that we've talked to the AMPTP, which is the bargaining unit on the other side. All the studios bargain as one. Um, We have talked to a group of CEOs on the other side. And all indications are that there is a deal to be made, and we are certainly ready. The city, the town is certainly ready. Um... There's something stuck on the other side. We're, we're there every day. We're available every day. Is, it, is the issue that they don't want to sh- share the data, the streamers don't want to share the data, they don't want anyone to know who, how many people are watching? Is the issue greed? Is the issue uh, AI? They want to be able to have shows in the future that are just 
robots or, you know. Yes, 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 and yes. There, there's many issues. All of those are, yes. Uh, one big issue with the streamers in particular is they don't want to share the numbers of how many views they're getting, how much profit they're making. Um, and that's in the traditional model. So I've been doing this a long time. So in my network days, you know, on NYPD Blue and Cold Case and all that, the whole thing was viewership. You know, it was like you knew exactly how well you were doing or not. And then you got canceled if you weren't doing well enough. Enough. And the streamers now don't tell the creators how they're doing. So it's this mystery. It's this black box. They pay them up front for residuals, which, you know, that's, that is something that writers really count on is reuse. That's residuals, right? If, you, if I write an episode of Homeland, I get paid. And if I get, if there's a repeat, I get paid again. If we sell it to a market in Japan, I get paid again. That's, that's residuals. And streamers really aren't doing that. And so that has been a real problem in the last 10 years. Like that sort of source of income has gotten squeezed. Um, so, and, and it's hard for us to identify because we don't have the information just how much we're owed. So that is a, a big point of contention. All right. Well, wishing you the best of luck. Thank you. As a, as a major content uh, taker uh, and a fan of your work. Meredith Steam, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. The indictment today breaking through conversations in the West Wing. Federal charges against the president's son, Hunter Biden. New reaction with Wolf Blitzer next in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.